Whether you're just looking to stay warm during a hunt or need maximum concealment, the clothing you wear can make or break a hunt. At MidwayUSA.com, we understand hunting clothing has come a long way with more meticulously crafted camo patterns, advanced scent control technologies, and weatherproof options to withstand the elements. Hunters have to wait until their favorite season, but shouldn't wait on gear, which is why MidwayUSA offers super-fast shipping. When you're ready for your next system, log on to MidwayUSA.com. Midway USA brand product designers have one straightforward goal, develop high-quality, technically sound products and deliver them to customers at reasonable prices. If you are immersed in the shooting sports industry and pay close attention to every single detail, you know our products are built right and stand up to everyday use. Who has shooting mats and range bag systems to hunting clothing and just about everything for the outdoors? Log on and shop 24-7 with super-fast shipping. MidwayUSA.com I'm April Vokey, and you are listening to Anchored, my chance to speak with some of the most influential people involved in the outdoors today. Join me as I travel to sit face-to-face with my guests in their own homes to learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both indoors and out. Yaka Lucas has guided just about everywhere. From the Seychelles, Mongolia, Norway, and Zambia, Yako's even had years when he spent 320 days on the water. As founder of Captain Jack Films, the aspiring filmmaker made his mark over a decade ago by producing some of the most captivating films ever made about our sport. Yako's films are crowd favorites in the fly fishing film tour, and he's made a name for himself as an industry leader. In this episode of Anchored, we discuss fishing for GTs, floating crabs, and breaking into the guiding industry. Born in South Africa in Johannesburg, uh, a lot of my family from Cape Town and Johannesburg, so born there and spent a lot of time on the coast of the Cape, Eastern Cape, Northern Cape, everywhere, so yeah, that was where it all happened. Was your dad an angler? Was your mom an angler? So the funny thing is, is both my dad and I are complete fishing freaks and my mom and sister could not care less about fishing, which is fine, which always worked out because they let the boys do their thing and the girls do their thing. So my dad, he he wasn't from birth, he wasn't like a fisherman like I was, but when he started the police force, he met some friends that fished and started fishing a lot. And then he started becoming a competitive angler, uh, rock and surf angling, which I... I think you and Charles have done similar stuff in Australia where you kind of fish from the beaches and we used to just fish for as big a fish as we can, big sharks and stuff. So mm-hmm. from, like I said, my early memories are just standing in the fishing pools where my dad's fishing for these big sharks and I'm catching <laughs> these little little fish in the rocks. And and I've got a photo where I'm a little baby lying mm-hmm. in between his reels and my mom showed me some photos from kindergarten where every time they gave me a piece of paper, it would be a shark that I drew on it. There was nothing else. I didn't want to draw anything else so it was kind of inevitable that that was what my future was going to be yeah and he didn't push it on you you didn't dread it growing up not at all and I appreciate that because now every time I speak to somebody like my wife she she's awesome and she's allowed me to do as much fishing as I possibly could and travel but I said to her if you don't really like it we can go fishing and she wanted to try but if you don't like it don't don't force itself on you. It's got to be in your blood. If you don't, if your heart doesn't race when you see that fish come closer or you don't get that feeling, same with hunting, then don't force it. In South Africa, is there a little bit of the man? I always kind of feel like in Australia and South Africa, there's this feel of men do men stuff and women do women stuff. Am I right in feeling like that? Very correct. Uh, I was at a friend's, they, they just bought a house uh, close to us and we went to their housewarming and uh, there was a lot of different cultural people there and at one stage the boys were sitting and watching rugby and the girls were sitting <laughs> in a table at the kitchen talking about that stuff and it, and he the one guy <laughs> that, that <laughs> stuff what is that stuff <laughs> whatever girls talk about um, and, and the one guy actually turned to me and he said to me like is this is how South African men is that how things happen I was like not <laughs> really uh, we, we do all mingle but that's kind of how you know it all ends up the girls like to I, I think I think what happens is the guys talk about too much stupid things and the girl's like, okay, we need to talk about real life stuff. Let's go. Because <laughs> <Right. laughs> it's, yeah. Now, you know my husband. I mean, you 
guys knew each other before I ever met you. Yeah. And before I ever met him, you've known him longer than I have. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, it's it's a shame because I've seen him so, so such a long time ago, and I think one of my most memorable guiding experience was with him. Oh, like, really? I mean, it's something I'll never forget. In Mongolia. In Mongolia, and it's it's such a moment. It was when he caught a big timer and that whole scenario that played out I, f- I feel like I can record I've recorded it in my mind like playback <laughs> minute by minute like second by second it was amazing you know he plays it back to himself often too you guys both share that together I can see when every time when every time I speak to him maybe on messenger stuff that he gets FOMO like I do the fear of missing out yes. and I think it's like <laughs> it's bad I was just telling Andy after we wrapped it up because Andy was saying that he's not that social and I was saying it's a surprise to people I'm not either and I explained Charles is a bloody social butterfly like he's seen him he he loves he has full-on FOMO yeah. he hates missing out on anything yeah and I'm always like let's just go home and he's like what no no look at <laughs> all the stuff that's happening we need to go here we need to go there and he's a true-blooded Australian he's I, I, yeah <laughs> yes. they, they're amazing people so yeah I mean next whenever we can get out on the water again all of us together will be amazing okay well, we'll make it happen yeah. now let's get back to your upbringing did you know at an early age that you wanted to do this for a living it was around, um, I would say, just sort of towards the second last year of high school where I met uh, a friend of mine, Keith Rosinas, which you know, and ah. we met at the most random place in on a beach in South Africa. He'd just come back from the Panoi from a season, and his dad actually was there speaking about what Keith does, and I was like, this is, how cool is that if you can do this for a living? And then I met him, and he kind of gave me just some guidelines to follow. And like what? I'm, what would some of his guidelines be? He was just, uh, you need to, he said there's kind of just a process. You can't just jump into it. So firstly, I decided just to finish my degree and get my degree in uh, university in marketing and finish that up. Oh. And so then he said, try and go to a fly shop, meet some people, learn how everything works, tackle, learn the brands, learn everything. I mean, at that stage, I already was completely addicted to fly fishing. You know, when you like, st- <laughs> yes. you like, you have, you know, everything about every piece of equipment. So I went after high school, went to work at Farlow's in London. Oh, you did? Yeah. Like the, there's like a South, a South African lineup <laughs> of people that do that. Um, it's so funny because that's why I love this podcast. Half my guests mention other guests who have been on the show. So you can be like, oh, that Keith Rosen is sounds interesting. They scroll through the guest list and you know, there he is, episode whatever. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. So yeah, no, you're right. This is exactly what he was saying. I met a lot of people there and I, I told, kept telling, telling people at the shop that I want to be a guide. I want to be a guide. And I've got a very OCD uh, f- the way I live. You'll see if you go to my room now, everything is like very organized. And um, so then uh, worked at Farlow's, met a lot of people, tried to work in advance at different shows and everywhere, and then ended up just calling him up again and said, look, I've done everything you said I needed to do. You need to give me a job. Two weeks later, I was in Cosmolito guiding people to over 300 GTs a week. That's how it started. Yeah. So I, I also, what oh. I do is I always say, fake it till you make it. Like every time, Farlow's didn't really have a job available at the time. I yeah. walked into the shop. I said, I'll work here a little bit for free, but at some point I need to earn money to make a living, but I need to do something and make this happen. So, and that's the only way, you know, I mean. Totally. No, good for you. Because I always say to people, you know, I know you want to get into guiding. Tell them you'll work for free. Tell them that you'll clean cabins. I don't know, just get in there to make connections. Because, I mean, at the end of the day, when you start getting into it, more people realize that it is actually a job. It has it, it has it, it has its pros and cons. I mean, it's not always some. A lot of times, you're scrubbing boats or you're doing stuff you don't want to do that's outside of guiding. But I'd rather have those problems at what I'd love to do in guiding than at an office. Why did you want to be a guide? Um, I just, like I said, now I've I've guided a little bit less these last sort of two years, and I can feel that it's really in my blood. I really, honestly, it's it's not trying to sound dreamy or anything, but I really get a lot of enjoyment out of seeing somebody catch a fish mm-hmm. that they like, and I can live vicariously through them. I don't need to catch that fish. Um, I know that at some point I'll have a chance to do it, but just getting fish with clients and being on the water is 100% where I feel most natural. Do you feel like you can get the same experience by filming other people catching fish? Yes, and that's kind of where it all started. Again, the stuff that I've done filming-wise is not as professional as a lot of guys do with the, with the great cameras that they've got and the, and their um, knowledge of how to work cameras or, or make or edit a movie. These guys that I looked up to a lot, but what I really enjoyed doing was just capturing those moments that I know in fishing, 
those moments only happen once every time every time you catch something every time a fish refuses your fly it's that's the last time it's going to happen so if you can just capture that moment at least you can maybe have a chance at looking at it again and i always had clients you know when you get clients in and they said oh i should have been here last week and you (laughs) say um play the video and say yes this is what happened <laughs> oh this makes it worse though yeah. so let's start with the guiding so you go to the Seychelles I mean that is a really big deal to have that be your first guiding job it is and completely spoiled I mean I I know now when I look back that place is phenomenal and because a lot of my career has revolved around GT fishing and the the thing that we were very lucky with at Cosmolito is we learned to learn their behavior very quickly with the amount of GTs that were there so we could identify these things that work or, or whatever I mean they're bulldogs but the stuff that works and I mean, I was guiding with guys that I've looked up to. And, and every time I meet somebody in the fly fishing industry, they might not know it, but I'll be like starstruck um, <laughs> just because I've either seen them in a book or read their articles or read a book. Yeah, whichever way it may be. And I mean, I was with guys there that I just like quietly try to look like I know what I was doing, but I was <laughs> no idea because um, I was guiding the Seychelles for four years before I first picked up a fly rod. So I would have had to let clients know that Look, I mean, we, I've caught many of these fish. Yes, trigger fish, of course. Yeah, just cast the dead, just do that there. So, but it, what, it learned, what I learned out of it a lot, and I appreciate that, is, is that now I can guide a client within his ability and not my ability. Right. So if that fish is 30 feet out and he can only make 15 feet cast, then I can just walk around, just position and, and do that. But it, it was tough. I, I'd, my, my one buddy and I, Tim Babbage, would stay up at night until twelve o'clock, after twelve o'clock, catching GTs around the boat, just getting that, the getting feel. that stress out. How did you help them improve their casting if you weren't casting yourself? I, I knew um, I was when I was at Follows. I was very um, adamant on learning how to be a pretty good caster. I'm not saying I, I mean there's phenomenal casters out there. I. I, I kind of slowly taught myself, but there was a lot of guys. I mean, I was lucky enough to meet uh, a guy, Jerry Seam from Sage when I was at Farlow's and, and just the small few pointers that he gave me was stuff that I could, that I was obsessively remembering and practicing. So I was able to just convey that to clients. I'm not the best when it comes to that because I can't always identify exactly the problem without having the solution. But I would, the thing that I think I do a lot is when I'm guiding, I'm very calm. So I don't mm-hmm. try and stress the client out. If it doesn't make it happen, I'll just slowly say, okay, let's try it again or just keep going. Um, I have cried myself to sleep <laughs> a lot of nights after <laughs> guiding, but um, that's part of the game. And, yeah. and we, can't, we can't expect all these clients to make massive costs if they have to earn that amount of money to do these trips. Yeah, that's a good point. So you were fly fishing, but you just weren't necessarily skilled with that fishery. Yes, so I, I had um, guided and fished, uh, fly fished a lot within South Africa, and um, a lot of South Africans, we've got some GT fisheries there, but it is tough. So a lot of us learn very hard lessons on how to fish for GTs or any or any other kind of fish. And um, I would say a lot of South Africans are pretty good, uh, either competitive anglers or know how to read water. The thing is, is what I tell a lot of people too. Even if you're a conventional angler, you can't be snobbish about people that fish conventional because you learn so much from it too because when i was fishing from the beach i would learn okay we need two days of easterly wind to come in and then a westerly wind and we need a channel to come in there and you learn to read that water because even if you're fishing with bait or a a lure you need to be where the fish are so it all helps to for the bigger picture i couldn't agree with you more in fact i felt really stupid i was interviewing tom roland yesterday oh yeah and i still fish bait I love live yeah. baiting off the rocks. I still fish conventional gear. And we're talking about permit behavior. And, you know, obviously I love permit fishing. And I've never caught one on a live crab. I mean, how that's, on that's earth true. am I supposed to know how to catch a permit if I don't even know how they take a live crab? And he was explaining it to me, you know, how they do go about taking crabs. And I was in awe. So I'm actually going to do it. I'm going to pick up the spinning rod and try to catch a permit on a crab. Oh, and all you can learn is behavior and, and then get to know the fish better, for sure. Did you guys ever do that in Seychelles? Look, the, the numbers were, were so big there. So we were changing a lot of flies, but I would say off like offshore fishing outside, we also, I mean, the GTs would behave a little bit different there. So, I mean, but the, that fishing fishery is so prolific that you don't necessarily need to use a bait method that I've you, you learn so much just from the fly fishing and seeing that amount of fish and how they move. For example, um, 
I am not a big fan of poppers for GTs. Um, ah. Just purely because, especially with clients, if it's a guy that's caught uh, many fish, that's fine. Um, to get that eat is phenomenal. But the reason being is, especially when you're fishing flats and you've got big fish coming in, that they push such a big wake. And with those big numbers, I've started creating averages on how many times a GT would push the, the popper out of the way with the wake, and you'd miss the GT then with just a streamer where he just comes in and sucks it in. And Do you think that's part of the fly construction, though? Because I know like when I fish steelhead or Atlantic salmon and I use a bomber, the fly construction pushes with the wake, but there are other dry flies that tend to stick more to that water, and it doesn't get pushed away. Do you think that yeah. there's certain fly creations that don't push? Yes, I, I, I think that, I mean, you know, James Christmas, he... Mm-hmm. He's made an amazing fly with a nyap, which the method that you fish that the, is... The nyap, just so everyone knows, it's not your average popper. <laughs> exactly. it's, it's a crease fly made by James Christmas. It's brilliant. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. And, and the way that you can fish that fly is not necessarily like pounding it through the water. It's, it's different. Um, so you can get to slow that fly down and get that fish to suck it in better than a normal popper. And then um, Alec from uh, Alphonse has also managed with the Reaper, which yeah. is just this big bomb that pounds. <laughs> yes. and. What I've been told by guys that do a lot of uh, popping fishing for GTs is that a lot of those uh, rooster poppers and, and may haymakers or whatever you call them are not necessarily, uh, they attract GTs because it sounds like another GT feeding. So they're coming uh-huh. to investigate. So that's why they would eat it so aggressively because they are scared that the GT is going to get whatever that it's. Yeah. So uh, yeah, because it does, it makes that real hollow blooping sound. I fished Alex flies and James's flies. I find James's flies easier to cast, but yeah. I love the sound. Alex flies make. yes yeah so I mean a lot of flies now um, like a guy like uh, uh, Blaine Chocolate which also ties amazing flies they're not always the easiest flies to cast also when you have clients but the guys are so innovative with the flies that they tie it's in I mean or sometimes with the creations that they come up with I mean right. they're making life easy for us because I'm not a great fly tire but just the innovative flies that they keep coming up with just helps us a lot and and it de- definitely shows the numbers of fish like Alphonse now with the permit after the Alflexo crab I mean they quadrupled the numbers of permit they were catching in a season because of that specific fly and how they were learning and seeing those fish every day and eventually just that one thing clicked and it worked but do you think it's a learning curve for the fish do you think that now the fish are going to be even harder to catch because they'll get used to this fly yeah, yeah. Yes, I, I think fish do get educated. People think they're stupid. They are extremely intelligent creatures. You can see that with GTs. Um, when you go and see the pets uh, in the Seychelles, like at Farquhar, we'd have 50 GTs swimming, and the clients would say, can I catch one of those? And a lot of times we just say no because it's... it's too easy. Uh, yeah, and but those fish are quite well educated because there's so many people that's fished for them, so they can a lot of the times refuse flies and stuff, so they, they've learned a lot. The, that's the thing that I take my hat off to the Alphonse crew is, is that they, they keep innovating flies because they know how it works. And if you look at a place like Alphonse, it's been fished for over two decades and it's still a pretty damn good fishery because of the guides keeping uh, and learning and they know that place really well. Did you find that triggers were willing to eat in the beginning of the season and then at the end of the season, they'd be a little less willing? Yeah, you have to get a little bit more on on par because you. I mean, trigger fish are they resident fish, so you get to learn your specific. This trigger is going to be there. I mean, there are places with bigger numbers that there's some one might appear that you haven't seen for a long time, or it could be a new one, whichever way it may be. But um, fish definitely become a little bit harder. But then you just have to keep innovating and trick trying to trick them another way. <laughs> trick the triggers. Yeah. I think the biggest thing that was a surprise for me when I first fished the, the Seychelles was. The big rods, like a 12 weight, was really new to me. And I remember James being like, but I thought you could cast. And I was like, yeah, just hang on. I've never cast a 12 weight. <laughs> and I remember thinking to myself, why did I not practice? And I never made that mistake again. You know, now when I go, I, I know how to cast a 12 weight. Yeah. But I was amazed by how many people on my last trip to the Seychelles, they looked like, like they'd never held a 12 weight in their life. And like they'd just taken it out of the wrapping. Do you, was that really frustrating for you? It's it's a different animal at twelve weight. I always I, I was I'm now when I walk into a shop I'm so amused when somebody picks up a twelve weight and starts shaking it. I'm like shaking it in a shop <laughs> and going taking it to into a thirty knot wind is a different story. Totally. Um, it is, and I, I know there's a lot of companies trying to develop a rod that's easier, maybe a shorter spay rod, and um, and which helps the clients. But at the end of the day, there's one recipe that works the best. And I, I tell clients, if you can, you can try and come with a 12, 11 weight if you feel more comfortable casting with it. But 
at the end of the day, if you have that one opportunity at 120 pound GT, you're going to need the 12 weight to break that fish's spirit and learn how to cast it because it's not going to, it's not like a nine weight that you'll get that'll bend nicely into the rod where you can load the line. This thing's a beast. So just any way you can get at least for GTs, at least 30 feet plus, 45 feet would be amazing. If you can just get that out, just keep practicing. Because, I mean, it's also people get tired. I mean, that's such well, a that's beast of thing. a rod. Yeah, get real tired. Um, and it's one thing if you're up on the bow of the boat and you've got that little, you know, you've got the height behind you. But when you're in the flats, it's just exhausting. But I guess the other thing is, you know, in the flats, you're sight fishing. Whereas yeah. if you're in the boat, you're usually just trying to call them in, right? Yeah. I'm going to ask you something. You're not guiding there anymore, right? Uh, not at the moment. I'm going back again at the end of the year, but it's with clients. Okay. So yeah. you, you might be sensitive to the answer here. But I've always wondered if the guides take the angler out into the deeper water to call them in if they kind of feel at a loss. Is that the sort of thing that you do when you're just desperate to get someone into a fish or is it actually something you guys enjoy and consider sporting? Uh, honestly, for my personal perspective, I uh, blind casting for GTs, I could say I've done a total of 1% of my guiding career. I do not like it personally. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's the same with, I, f- I feel, it's it's hard to say because I never really guided on Alphonse or the places where you kind of sometimes when the tide pushes you off and you have to try and do something a little bit different to keep the client going and keeping keep getting him into that GT because they have caught massive GTs like that. But I would rather walk around an island for the slight chance of a GT coming around an island or just that visual thought because I, what I've seen with time and fishing too, if you ask a client to pound the water for the whole day, you have to literally keep him motivated the whole day. It's going to happen now. It's going to happen now. It's going to happen now. And and I have to say, we kind of probably a little bit guilty with this with GTs because people see the movies and then they think this is just easy. They just <laughs> yeah. plop flies out there. But even at Cosmolito, Providence and those places that are untouched as any fishery can be, I've had tough days. I've had days where you don't get a GT, which um, again, somebody asked me the other day and I said to him again, we, we do guide out there a lot, but I still don't know certain factors that might play a role that we don't understand so for example like i said when i am fishing at home i know the wind needs to blow like this and this and this and then the tide needs to be there and very small things the water can be one temperature up or something then i know this is not good but i think in seychelles we're still missing some elements where we don't understand like the swimming crab thing uh, a few seasons back we got to the island all excited first time out first week out we caught a couple of GTs and then they were there was nothing and nobody could understand where they were. I wrote a thing uh, about climate change and stuff like that, which is also a very sensitive subject. Extremely sensitive. But it's hard to not start believing in, in it because you see all these. That And that season in the Seychelles, I saw Cosmolito's flat being one to two degrees Celsius, uh, degrees Celsius higher than what I've ever seen it before. So I don't know if it was currents or what was exactly, but the GTs were not happy about it. And I don't know if it was the crabs that they were after or that specific water temperature. What, what was with the crabs? So, so in the Seychelles, you get this, um, and the first time I heard about it is there was a, a company doing geomapping of Farquhar Island when I, because I, I spent months on end on that island they were doing remapping the whole island and the area and they went over a specific area and looked like an oil slick and what it ended up being was uh crabs everywhere millions and millions of of red swimming crabs and then what i did is is they told me and it was a specific place and after that we actually learned it was a amazing area but it was way off the atoll so you drive there with clients and they think this guy's mad because we are we don't see land anymore but these crabs gathered in this area and and we started fishing that area, teased a little bit, and then you just pop them up, and there were GTs everywhere, and everyone you landed were was chock full of crabs. It's the same as that bird thing that happened. The first time we got there at Gullet Island, we couldn't understand what was going on because you just see these explosions, and a little bit later on, we just focused on them, and then we'd see these GTs come out and just devour these birds mid-air. What? Yeah, I've never heard of this. <laughs> it's uh, it is phenomenal. It is probably also again one of the most amazing things I've ever seen. It was funny. It was uh, 2011 season. We just started. We just got the boats ready. We were hating life because we weren't sleeping. We were <laughs> yeah. boats kept the engines kept breaking. They weren't because they were standing the whole season. So we just had to keep fixing them. Eventually, we got out. One of the guides, uh, Warren Dasel and Keith, were on the same island around Goulet Island. 
and they had a good day, caught a lot of the GTs. They came back and they said they saw these explosions and Warren said that when he walked back to the boat, he 100% saw a GT eat a bird. What we kind thought of it was, birds? Like just seabirds? So they were terns that were... Oh, or that, So yes, at, at a specific time of the year, they were breeding around that island and they were learning to fly. Oh, so, so they're what, juveniles? Yes. So what the um, GTs learned is, is that they would get these wobbles and go slow down in the water and then they would capitalize on that oh my god and they were just smoking those but i with my own eyes i'll again engraved in my brain i saw a gt come up grab a bird's tail pull him down the bird got away three times before the fourth time he managed to swallow the whole bird mid-air just gone you just saw the the, the two wings are they so, jumping up they breaching full breach i've what? seen them come up two three meters just like as high as it's impossible to think that a GT can jump that high, but they were lunging out of the water. But when you're so, fighting a GT, they don't jump? No. Do they? No. No. It's completely out of their behavior. Um, BBC did something on it recently. Uh, well, they, they, they started, I, um, we kind of just told the story to them and made them understand what was going on and they managed to get some phenomenal footage. But to see a, a fish, again, do something so out of its nature and it makes you show, again, how smart they are. And that's the same thing with these crabs that they were doing. They were just following. They knew. Easy snack. I mean, anybody that can get a f- those fish, I think they're so driven by food, obviously. And that's kind of sm- these small things that happen that we never – that still could surprise us that we don't know that much about the place. So we're putting the puzzle slowly together, but it's still going to take years for us to understand exactly how the fishery works, where the fish are now. Um, I've had times where it wasn't swimming crabs, it wasn't birds, it wasn't anything. The GTs were just sitting deep in the water. And the only reason why we found that out is we had, strangely enough, one spinning group for the week for the whole season, the only guys that I've got spinning and we'd only take them offshore and we found GTs in hundred meters of water, which was why, yeah. So again, what are they doing down there? Yeah. So it's, it's a lot of learning curves, but kidding. But again, that's also why I love what we do. It's you never, ever know it. Hunting boots are a critical component of any successful hunt, whether walking a short distance to your blind or trudging miles through rugged terrain, your feet are carrying the load. Without the right boots, you could give up early and lose out on that trophy just over the ridge. At Midway USA, we make selecting boots for your next hunt easier. With just a few clicks of a mouse, you can decide on what's important, like waterproofing, insulation, size, width, and savings. For just about everything for shooting, hunting, and the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. Knives, machetes, saws, and shears, multi-tools, shovels, swords, axes, spears, hatchets, and tomahawks. If it cuts, snips, slices, or chops, Midway USA has it. Find great gift ideas in our huge selection of pocket knives and other everyday carry folding knives. Make a statement or create a family legacy with one of our top-of-the-line hunting knives. We've got a great selection of manual and electric sharpeners, too. For just about everything for the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. Is that how the filming started? You're seeing all of this and you're going, I have to capture this. Yeah, yeah, 100%. And it's, again, it's every time you record something, it's something that's that's there forever now where it would have been lost and you could only tell these stories. Now, when I tell people about one of the biggest GTs I've seen eat a fly right in front of the client, I just show them gangsters of the fat and they yeah. understand what I mean. Totally. I love showing people that. <laughs> so you're filming and guiding at the same time. Yeah, I'm trying to, usually I first make sure that the client's are comfortable in in getting the fish and then i would try and take out a camera and just let them know look if something cool happens let's try and get this how did the mongolia thing happen how did that come to be so the funny thing is i guided dan vermilion one of the vermilion brothers that were pioneers in mongolia in the seychelles and we we kind of hit it off really quickly and what happened is is there was this one situation and he immediately asked me to guide in Mongolia afterwards. His nephew that was with him, Ben Pierce, hooked a big bumphead parrotfish. And we'd already lost five that morning. And I knew he had it on solid, wasn't going to bite him off. So he was fighting, fighting. And we had it on the flat and it just managed to get into a lagoon. And it went around a piece of coral. And I said to him, there's no way we're going to lose this thing. So at the same time, as I started giving Dan my bags, 
there was a, sh- a, a big shark that came down the flat. What kind of shark? I think it was probably a nurse shark. It could have been a bull shark. Oh my, my stomach just went like, <laughs> 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 nurse shark, great. Bull shark, nope. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, yeah, either lemon. It was one of the, we just had a quick glimpse of it. It was huge. But I said to Dan, try and get your GT rod ready. I'm going to swim for this shark. No. And jumped in the water. What do you mean you're going to swim for the? What are you going to do when you get to it? So the plan was to just get the bumpier, the line around the coral. Because it was one coral head and we just had to flip the line over. And it was deep. I was treading water. So I managed. And Dan, I remember at the same time as I was jumping, he's like, it's not worth it. Don't go. I jumped. We got the line off. We landed the fish. We got the photos. And he just said, look, are you interested in guiding Mongolia this season? And I just said, yeah. He said, if you're willing to do all that kind of stuff, I'm sure you'll be okay in Mongolia. Did you like guiding in Mongolia? Oh, yeah. It's, it's, it's still probably one of my favorite places in the world. Uh, the people... It, for me, again, I was very lucky in a sense that I had somebody like Charles my first week because he knew about time and fishing. So I, I soak up stuff like a sponge. So I, I was just listening to everything he said when we were on the boat, the way he was fishing. I was looking at the way he was fishing because he's a phenomenal angler. He's a good angler. Yeah. And just just soaked up everything. And by the week that when he left, I was good to go. <laughs> I, was, I was fine. So I didn't never needed training. I was just comfortable with the next week it was awesome oh i need to fish with him we you know i fished mongolia without him and he's fished mongolia you know lots without me yeah. we've never fished together She's you ever shared a flats boat with that guy don't <laughs> <laughs> don't he hates permit with a passion oh, hates no. them he hates them so much that he will sabotage your day just so that you don't go permit this is what he does with, with me and Jono. <laughs> no, so good. he will wait until a permit is coming in hot and i'm ready do you know what he starts doing roll casting to mullet Oh no! Because his thing is, is if I make your life not just mine, but your anybody, he, he's not. He'll do this to anybody. If I make your life miserable enough, you won't want to go fishing for permits. So that's <laughs> his strategy. He's a genius, but he's such an asshole. He's going to get kicked off the boat for so, sure. You know what? I'm just giving you heads up because I know you guys are friends. Don't share a flats boat with him unless it's okay. just for GTs. So we'll go permit fishing without him, and then we can go GT fishing with him. Exactly. Okay. Now, when you're going GT fishing and you are on foot and you're not in a boat, are you doing kind of the rooster fish thing where you're you're running them down, or are you calling them in, or are you just looking for them? So honestly, the first couple of seasons we were very young and dumb, and we would mostly just sight fish and walk and stalk but we did also when times got tough we teased them but when i mean times got tough as we were like 20 gts down for the session and the clients got antsy because they weren't seeing gts for a minute (laughs) so we got pressured into that but after that we kind of grew up and understood that if we tease these fish they're getting educated they're going to eat less flies so now for me in the last i would say the last eight years that i was guiding for them it was purely walk and stalk if it's a tough day it's a tough day so for me with a client I say to them, look, I mean, GTs are aggressive. They'll eat a fly from a long way around. But a lot of the times they're always moving to feed. So you have to, at some point, get your ass in gear and start chasing that fish. If you want it, you need to chase it. I, I know you might be 65 or 70 years old. If you want this, we need to make it happen. I'll pick you up on my shoulders if we need to, but we need to move. So they do move and you do need to be ready for it sometimes. Um, what I have done in the past, which has worked, is, is if they, I do see they're a little bit wide from us, I'll just start splashing the water next to me and I've had fish turn on me just on the noise and then the client gets the chance to make it but if now if I see a fish swim away I kind of feel it wasn't meant to be I'll get it with the next client and that's what I've learned with Mongolia I learned a lot of lessons there with how because the fishing is really tough it's not mm-hmm. easy if you want to catch a time and you need to be ready to work hard for it you know you were you were lucky enough to get a monster fish too mm-hmm. and it's every moment people need to understand it's if and if you make it happen you need to understand that was amazing really good moment what about the parrotfish because i didn't even think you could catch them on the fly and i started seeing you guys do it and i mean i want one but i don't know how to do it how do you do it the thing is is firstly you just got to be also dumb enough to make a lot of mistakes i remember (laughs) the first couple of seasons in providence where tim and i were trying to figure out because we were hooking them we saw they were doing something that they were feeding on the flats They, they were tails up they were grazing they were doing something So a lot of the times when they're on the flats, obviously they do eat a lot of coral. So the majority of what they eat is coral, but to grow that size, they still have to get whatever in their mouth. So I think they graze like cows. So you just have to have something that's similar on what they like to feed. But are they vegetarians? Do they eat crabs? Uh, No, I think they do eat, they do get proteins in. It's the same thing with milkfish. I think they eat those copra pods and all that kind of stuff to do get some other substance in them. 
but I've seen some bumpies do some crazy stuff. I've seen them at one point, and that was on my last season at Farquhar, which I still I want to get back at some point to do it because I saw bumpies on the high tide starting to feed. It was very flat. And I don't know if it's for their digestion, but they were feeding on turtle grass. I would see those big giant head come up with a little mouth and just pick that pieces of turtle grass off the surface. And I've seen them do it multiple times. I could never see exactly what they ate, but I started seeing exactly what they were doing. I just never had that chance to try for them like that. So I think they also, again, a little bit opportunistic in that sense. And that's what we did with the crabs. I also caught them on bigger shrimp patterns where you just get it in their line. Their eyes are really small. It's far away from their heads. So you kind of get lucky where the fish just tilts the right way because they would turn a little bit sideways and then just get a glimpse of it and then face down and just pick it up. The reason why I think we're getting them too is because it's a, it's a question of numbers. I mean, if you're casting at 60 fish, one is more than likely going to see your fly. If you cast it in there, just keep it static, keep the tension, and then hook up. Um, but you're not, you're not stripping shrimp patterns back then? No, just, no. You're kind of patterns. letting it sit very, very static, just keeping tension on it and maybe just giving a little twitch so that it sees there's something going on there. And then they just kind of graze over it and, and suck it up. And I saw it now. Um, I was in Cuba now, and I saw something very interesting because – I was with a veteran guide there, Manolo, and he, we were looking for permit, and there were these parrotfish on this on this one section. And like bumphead. Is there only? One? I mean, what, there must weird. be different kinds of parrotfish. Yes, yeah, yeah. They, they, the bumpies are the biggest ones. These ones were huge. They were in between the emerald parrots, which you also get, which are the beautiful colored ones too. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would say these fish were all between like twenty, thirty pound big ones um, in Cuba, in in uh, on in Juventud, and. The guy, I immediately said to the guy, look, I mean, I've caught these guys before. Can, can we try for them? And he's like, no, those things don't eat. And I said to him, let's just give it a go. And I mean, the first two fish that I cast that both followed my fly and I had one fish eat the fly. And it was crazy. They were a lot more aggressive than I've seen any parrotfish. I've seen emerald parrotfish do that same thing. But these fish were tracking my fly and literally trying to eat it. So it was, it was cool to see. Those one, the one in Cuba now... They are spectacularly beautiful. So I would love to go and get one, but I still have a few scores to settle because my last Cuba trip also, I hooked a monster permit and it wrapped the line around my legs and snapped me off. So I've got nightmares forever. No kidding. Well, everyone told me you couldn't catch those parrotfish. I strongly advise people listening to this, if you don't know what we're talking about right now, like the bumphead parrots, get onto Google and have a look because you will never be the same. (laughs) They're aliens. (laughs) They're the weirdest looking things. And that's the thing is, is I... I love to do that. If somebody, and, and that's with all sorts of things in life, if somebody says you can't do it, just give it a try because you never know. And we were in a lucky situation where we always had them around us. So we kind of figured if you've got a little bit of a slow time, let's try and figure these things out because all it can do is add value to what you bring clients. And same thing with a milkfish. I mean, those guys were working hard, Wayne and Arno and those guys, and they cracked the code and now it's a, a a thing that adds value to those trips. Did the targeting parrots come before or after milks? Uh, after the milkfish. That's what I thought. Yeah. Okay. Was there somebody who was really behind that? Like, who do you who do you think of when you think of cracking that code? Uh, with the bumpies, Keith was extremely adamant. I at that point, they uh, Keith had landed one with a client, and Paulie had landed one. And I remember that I had also again one of those things edged in my mind is I was at Providence. I had a client, Ronnie Butler. Uh, we managed to get number two and three parrotfish in the same day. Number three was a tragic story because I had it in my hands. We wanted to get a photo and it plopped out and disappeared. And I was like, this is it. This is the only parrotfish I'm ever going to see. And then, I mean, we retied, regrouped, next bunch he cast in, we got one. Luckily, you know, you get those giant ones, which are 90, 100 pounds. But we were, the. I always say to the clients, look, let's not go for the biggest one. These nice little smaller ones are perfect targets for us. And you can get your fish and you get like those 15, 20 pounders. And that's that's perfect. Do they just head straight for the coral? What they do is, is as soon as you hook one, they follow the herd. They, I think they're not the most intelligent fish. They don't look it, but <laughs> no. they, they run with the herd and then you kind of just got to buckle down. And as soon as you flip that head up and get them out of that shoal, then you are 30% there. Then you get it closer with the fight. And then I would say 50% of the fight happens around the angler because there's no place to grab it. Um, we've had radio calls. I remember after I landed the the third one, one of the guide friends, they just hooked up a guy um, from Scotland, Corin. He just hooked up with a client 
And he said, so how do you land this thing? And all I just said is rugby tackle it, dude. Just like, go for it and just tackle it. Don't mind the beak. Just get your hands around it. And Can and that's they hurt you like with their beak or, or do they have that ability? We have been very lucky and nothing with a beak. We've had one of our guides, Tim, almost get his jaw dislocated because uh, they do hit hard with their... So what they would do is if you grab them and you hold them up with the head up towards you, they've got a huge tail and they'll thump up. And what <gasps> happened this thing, this thing literally sweet chin music right up and just shot him up in the chin and he was knocked almost knocked out so there's been some crazy <laughs> things that happened like that that's incredible but let's yeah. get back to your filming because that's really the route i see you taking these days let's yeah. just talk about the evolution of your film career again like i said i do love it and um for me and again i think you've also got the same look in in fly fishing is for us it's about getting people into fly fishing because this i think we've dedicated our life to this sport and what it is now about is growing it so that we could end up maybe leaving something behind for for the next generation. And I think we have people that are our peers and that we look up to. And now we have to take that role. So I feel like with the movie stuff, I, I hope that fly fishing, I always say to young guys, is still respect all the people that laid the path for us to do it. But make it cool. If you want to wear a flat cap to do it, wear a flat cap, wear whatever you want to do, but respect still the fishing and respect the people and respect the area and the fish. So um, what I try to do is I've started just trying to get that, that the transition between snowboarding and skiing movies into fly fishing. And, and there's a lot of guys that have done amazing jobs with that. And, and I feel like that's what the younger guys are seeing now is they're seeing it's actually cool. It's cool being a guide. It's cool being a fly fisherman. It's, we're not just catching trout in the stream, but uh, we're doing these crazy things. And that's what I'm trying to do through the movies. Like I said, I'm still, if you knew how much I knew about a camera or editing, it's completely fake until you make it. I look through a lens. If it looks nice, I grab it. That's it. And then all I do is just like put something together at home. And uh, I'm trying to be a little bit this Australia project we've got coming up now, trying to get a shot list, trying to be more responsible with what cameras, what gear, what everything we have. So hopefully we can put something really cool together and again, showcase w more of what Australia has because I think it is so, so unrated. I mean, I don't think people understand how awesome it is mm -hmm. out there. And there's a few things that also people don't understand about the movie stuff we do is, is firstly, we're not trying to trash a fishery by getting millions of people out there. And also, I'm not trying to show people movies of places they'll never see. I'm trying to create a dream. I'm trying to create something. If they might not be able to go there one day, at least they can see it on screen. Or I can create a dream through the filmmaking and, and make them see what they can go and do. And if, and if anybody says to me they'll never be able to do it, I, I mean, I'll tell them about my complete history. I mean, I grew up with a fantastic family, a fantastic mom and dad, but we didn't have money. I mean, we, I would never afford these trips. I, these places I'm going to is completely out of hard work. When I get back from a guiding season, I was editing. I like telling the story about when I did the Gangster of the Flat, I was guiding in Norway 18 hours a day. Tom emailed me and said, could you do something Gangster of the Flat? I saw some Tom, Tom by? Yes, yeah. And, and I was guiding 18 hours a day. I'd come back three o'clock in the morning, edit, and then try and get maybe some couple of hours sleep. And then I did that for two weeks, sent the gangster of the flat in and people loved it. And, but that was through just loving the sport and wanting to do it. And it kind of progressed from there. So, I mean, it's, 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 I still, I still have a lot of people that I look up to, uh, R.A. Biadi, the guys from Felt Soul Media. There's some amazing filmmakers, R.C. Cohn. The guys are creating such uh, awesome stories now. Um, so I think it's going in the right direction and I would love to do better. Every time I do something, you know, when you edit something, you are sick and tired of it afterwards. You mm -hmm. don't want to see it, but I'm starting to enjoy the stuff I do more now when I see it on the big screen. And Hopefully I can keep doing it. When you mentioned the flat brims and you mentioned the snowboarding movie, to me, I immediately think back 10 years ago. I'm like, yeah. that's what it was 10 years ago. And then the film festival and the F3T and all of these and YouTube, it's just started to feel like all it was was fish porn and suddenly it, people were desensitized by it. Do you feel a pressure now to evolve further, take it one step beyond that sort of cool, fresh snowboard fishing scene yes i i think storytelling now to get a character to get anything of that is absolutely the thing now is honestly you can get a pretty inexpensive camera you can get a drone and you can make something pretty awesome you can get fish porn but to make a story out of it now and for people that just see fish porn stories if they start seeing a story behind it they need to understand the editor or the person filming it there's a lot of thought that goes into it there's a lot of stuff that needs to be filmed 
hate filming B-roll, but it makes a story. Yeah. <laughs> is it harder now that you've got to have a storyline? Yeah, 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 it's definitely. Because I, I, I remember back in my day, you just are like back in the snowboarding filming stuff. We just go fishing. Half the time, the bloody cameraman's fishing too, you know? It's like, oh, fish <laughs> yeah. is on, start rolling. And if you, if you could get the fish jump or the fish hookup, you had a film. But nowadays, you have to like plan. We've got to sit down. We've got to do interviews. There's real planning behind it. Is that yeah. harder for you? It's definitely harder, especially when I see what the guys are coming up with. I mean, some of the last stuff Tollwag Media and Feltzal have done. Oh, they're killing it. And to create a story that that's engraved so much in eight minutes is so crazy because people don't understand. The shorter it is, the more hard it gets telling that story and getting the whole thing across and still giving people a little bit of that fish excitement. And yeah, I mean, there's guys that I look up to and that do it really well, and I'd like to do it too. Like I said, I've got super OCD, and I'd love to... I, I sometimes just get frustrated with myself if I can't get across what I what I see in my mind, but oh, yeah. it's slowly there. Um, the editing process is, is like... A, usually, it's for me, I've worked over Christmas and New Year for the last three or four years because that's the time we do the editing and it's night after night. I mean, you're sitting up and if you're in a creative space, it sounds super Hollywood, but when you're in a creative space, you have to roll with it and you have to keep editing until you've got that piece out, what you what you got in your mind. Else tomorrow you've forgotten it. Yeah, no, it's, so, it, it's, it's art, right? You're painting an image. Yeah, and usually what I've seen with the movies now is, is I would get excited about the idea then film it, super excited if we get the shots. Then I go and then I start editing. If you are halfway through, you are hating life. You are hating because you don't feel like you're getting. And then it's that, I think it's like writing a book too. You get to a point, and I spoke to Blaine about it yesterday. It's like you reach a point where you just are sick and tired of it. But if you can push through that and just get that final hurdle done, you're going to be happy with the result. But it's it it the last the last half of the move making the movie is the worst because you've listened to the music a hundred times, a million times, and the eventually you've seen it so much you you kind of I also sometimes just show my wife the movie just to get a, a outsider's perspective of what I've been busy with. I can immediately see in her eyes if she thinks it's a home run, and then I just like okay cool this is good I can keep going. I always find that I can tell when the artist or the creator or whoever's doing the editing has got to that point. Halfway through in a book or in a movie, I can tell when they've lost it. Yeah. Because it's like it starts out so strong and then all of a sudden you're like, wait, what's, this, wait, what's happening? Why, where, where is this going now? Now, you've, yeah. you created Captain Jack. Is that, what's your production company? Uh, Captain Jack Productions. You know, now we're trying to create a, a group of content providers because, because, you know, our industry, that's what we make a living out of. And because there's a lot of people coming into it, they're willing to do... Uh, these different things. Honestly, now I'm, it might sound a little bit rude or something, but you know we need to make a living out of this. And if people are willing to do these things for free and do a pretty good job of it, they're taking this stuff away from us. And we are working hard to be where we are now. So I think definitely think content providers and you know social media. I love social media because it has grown our industry, but it's also been. I mean, I had a video that drone eat with a time and taken and built social media pages. One guy, I was in Mongolia at the time. My wife phoned me. She like, did you give guys your video? I said no. He said, this guy's got seven and a half million views on your video, and he hasn't <laughs> given you credit, and he's cut your logo out of your <gasps> video. I was like, oh man, this sucks, and I can't do anything about it because I'm sitting in Mongolia and I'm calling off a sat phone. So it's a love-hate relationship with that. But I think we need to stand together as content providers and people that are doing something out of the box and new and trying to develop the sport. All the companies that have supported us have been amazing, but it, it's definitely the, the guys coming into it now. Some of them, I really like them because they're very motivated, but we need to kind of stand together as content providers. For sure. Yeah. Do you think that someone who doesn't fish can do as good of a job filming as someone who does fish? You could see uh, certain angles on the camera when somebody likes fishing compared to somebody that doesn't like fishing. It's not necessarily a bad thing. Some guys have a different perspective on an angle. I try and try and get angles where I think fishermen are going to like that angle or see what's going on. And honestly, to me, you don't have to have a lot of it. You can have one or two, but the money shots, everybody wants to visually see something, kill something or eat something um, to get those close up eats. I was in Russia a few years back and I tried to film a dry fly eat on an Atlantic salmon and people don't realize I was filming for, for five weeks. It wasn't happening. And just following dry fly after dry fly with the 200 mil lens with my eye at some every day at the end of the day, I my one eye was completely out of focus because I had one eye closed and just rolling focus, wrap focus. 
the whole time. So just to get some of those eats are take a lot of hard work, do but I like it. Do you fish while you're filming these days or are you just behind the camera? So I've, I've mixed it up a little bit. So this next project, we've got a lot of guys on camera, so we'll take turns. But for me, it's important to definitely get the shots first and then try and get a little bit silly and try and get more fish ourselves. When, when Ara and I did the Bolivia project, we were filming right to the end. We ended up having a couple hours worth of fishing, which was more than enough because I got a giant Dorado and Paku <laughs> and everything that I wanted. Um, so it is nice to get that fishing fix every now and then. But it is hard to balance both. If you want to do something properly, you got to focus on the one thing at a time. Totally. Um, else you're going to just get distracted. I, when I start fishing, I go into another place. Right. And, and then I, it's difficult <laughs> to get out of it. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah. <laughs> Anything else on the horizon you want to talk about or mention? Uh, geez, yeah, this year is still packed. I've got the Australia project, which I'm very excited about. Hopefully, Where are you guys going to be in Australia? So we're going with uh, Josh Hitchens from Aussie Fly Angler mm-hmm. to uh, we flying. We ended up we end up going to Gove and then we're getting on a mothership called Phoenix. Um, and then we are going on this mothership and fishing all these different areas for tusk fish, uh, blue bastards, uh, queen fish, GTs, barramundi. Oh my God, you guys are going to have such an amazing trip. I mean, I've, I'm always excited about a trip because I always tell somebody, whether you're fishing a little trout stream, whether it be the swift or whatever, catching five-inch trout or wherever you may be, you must be excited about where you are. You can't think about something else. But I have to say this trip I've been excited about a long time. Cause you, you know what's so cool about this trip? It's such a long haul to get there. Yes. So even when you film it and put it out there, it's not like just any Joe Blow <laughs> can get there. You know, you have to yeah. really commit to making it happen. Yeah, and lugging all the stuff we're taking there. Keith just spoke to me yesterday. He's like, do I need to take the underwater housing for the FS5? It's 18 kilos on its own. I'm like, bring it. We've got to do something crazy Your this time. Your bill must be crazy with luggage. Yes, it's going to get pretty wild. I mean, our flights already, mine alone is up to $4,000. <laughs> so it gets uh, it gets expensive, but it's it's going to be worth it just once you pick up that fish. And uh, Charles, sorry, there's going to be lots of permit too, so you're not allowed. <laughs> you're uninvited. <laughs> yeah. That concludes this episode of Anchored. Thank you so much for listening. Join Captain Justin Leake and Meredith McCord for the best fishing action along Panama City Beach. Tune in to Chasing the Sun every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. I'm Will Cooper, and you're listening to HuntStand's Make Your Mark podcast on the Waypoint Podcast Network. Stick around as I bring you more stories and interviews from veteran hunters and industry professionals who inspire us all to be better equipped in the woods and in life.